Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad you're with us this morning. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 30. This is God's Word to us this morning. Grateful that He reveals Himself to us and speaks to us this morning. Let's stand as we give our attention to God's Word. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Thank you that you meet us where we are. And we ask that you, by your Spirit, would speak to our spirits that that deep down in our longings and in our desires and our needs, you would meet us this morning and that you would change our hearts. May we see how great Jesus is and the offer of Christ himself and all that comes with knowing you. And may we know that there's nothing better. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you this morning? Would you preach your word to us? May we hear from you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in our third week of a series that we've titled Renew for the glory of God and the good of Durham. It is a series that we've decided to do to align us to the vision of our church, what God has called Christ's central church to be about. It's not just the vision, but it's the values, the values that we hold it tightly. So if you're checking us out, this is a good time to be here because we are attempting to be clear and upfront about who we are, why we exist, and how we behave as a church. The answer to the question, how do we behave, is what Patrick Lencioni says are your core values. Core values provide the ultimate guide for us as a church and how we act and the decisions we make and the direction that we set. Timothy said last week, core values are the things that already exist. They're true of us. We're not trying to attain them. They are values that are inherent. They cannot be contrived. They are and have been true of Christ's central church. One way that I like to think about it, the five core values that we hold tightly here at Christ Central, grace-centered, worship-driven, cross-cultural, outward service, kingdom catalyst, are values that we are completely intolerant on wavering upon. We're intolerant. In a world that values tolerance, we believe that if we are intolerant on our core values, we will be who God has called us to be. And if we fail to be intolerant on these core values, we will not be who God has called us to be. So very simply, core values are what matter most. Last week, Timothy preached on grace-centered. This morning, I'm going to preach on worship-driven. Here's how we have defined worship-driven. We believe that everyone is hungering and thirsting for more in this life and that God alone can satisfy and quench this hunger and thirst. Therefore, we believe our chief end, humanity's chief end, is to glorify God by enjoying Him and boasting in what He has accomplished. God's design of us is that we are most fully human and fully alive when we live in communion with Him, enjoying Him, and glorifying Him, which is worship. But many of us struggle, and we fail to live in worship of God. Some of you have no desire to live in worship of God, and some of you here this morning don't believe that there is a God worthy of worship. So wherever you are this morning, we're glad you're here. A very well-known essayist and writer of the past century was a man named David Foster Wallace. He was not a Christian. He ended his own life in 2008. But listen to this long quote that comes from his commencement speech at Kenyon College that he gave. This is what David Foster Wallace said. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. And you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid 
a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you are doing. Wherever you are this morning, because we were created to worship, we will worship and are worshiping something. The question is, what are you worshiping? What are we worshiping? But we need to do more than just identify what we're worshiping. If we want to be a church that is worship-driven, we need to do more than just identify. There are three things that must happen if we want to be worship-driven. The first is that Jesus must replace what we worship. Jesus is the subject and the object of this first point. Jesus must replace. He must do it. And he must replace what we worship with himself. He must be the object of our worship. Look at the beginning of our passage. Jesus left Judea and departed for Galilee. And verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus really didn't have to go to Samaria. In fact, Jews who were serious about their culture and religion avoided Samaria. Samaritans were thought unclean. They were racially mixed, part Jew and Gentile. Therefore, they were disdained by Jews. But Jesus had to go to Samaria because Jesus is compelled by something much greater than being clean outwardly or being right culturally. Jesus had to go. Every time the Gospel of John uses this word had to, it's used in the context of divine necessity. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Because it was Jesus' intent all along to meet this woman at the sixth hour beside the well. Nothing that Jesus does is by coincidence. Every place Jesus goes, everything Jesus does, he does with intention, divine necessity. Jesus is intentional in his pursuit of this woman, and he is intentional in his pursuit of you. Nothing, listen, nothing going on in your life right now is by coincidence. Jesus wants to meet you beside the well of your life. Now, there are a number of interesting things about this Samaritan woman at the well. The first is that she's going to draw water from the well. That's pretty obvious. She's going to draw water, which is a bare essential. Water is necessary for living. It's necessary for survival. We need water. Our oldest son, Henry, is becoming more and more verbal. One of his most common phrases now is, I need that. <laughs> he will look me square in the eye and say, Dada, I need that. I need that bagel. And I laughed at first, and now I respond, Buddy, do you, do you need the bagel or do you want the bagel? And he still says, I, I need it. <laughs> there, there are many things that we're enticed by in our world and made to think we need. And the company Apple, and more particular Steve Jobs, was genius in making you think you need the newest and, and latest iPhone. Right? The iPhone 7 has just come out. I, I need the, the iPhone 7. There are many things, if we're honest, we can, like Henry, say, I need it. I need that. I need to get married. I need a new job. I need a bigger house or a different house. I need another drink or another high. 
I need to lose 15 pounds. I need children. I need to make a difference in this world. Now, sometimes our needs are necessities. But most often what we say our needs are really just wants. But they are wants magnified and improperly become for us necessary for life. And when we live for what we think is our greatest need, that's called worship. That's worship. Life is lived entering the temple of marriage and family and worshiping. Or the temple of success or the temple of pleasure, or the temple of self-righteous do-gooding, and we worship because we think they are necessary. The second thing we notice about this woman is that she goes in the middle of the day. The woman goes to the well at the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m. That's the hottest part of the day. Why in the world is she going to draw water from the well at 12 p.m.? Because she thinks she'll be able to do it in secret. She knows no one else will come to draw water from the well at 12 p.m. She's not only a Samaritan, but she's a woman. And she's a woman who has had five husbands. Culturally, she is unclean. And you can almost envision her coming to the well, hoping no one sees her, no one notices her. She is filled with deep, toxic shame. Toxic shame is about identity. Toxic shame says, I am fill in the blank. I am a mistake. I am dirty. I am less valuable than others because of fill in the blank. I could go on and on. I'm, I'm stupid. I'm a failure. I'm unlovable. I'm not enough. This woman is attempting to hide and to live in secret. When toxic shame is alive and well in our hearts and souls, we want to hide. We will try to escape into secret things and into secret places. The last thing we notice about this woman is that she has five husbands. Jesus tells her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You have five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. Jesus is revealing her heart's deep longings. She is drinking men. She's longing to be loved, and she's looking for that in a relationship with a man. Maybe she thinks that a, a man will offer security or comfort or pleasure, but she is looking to, to a relationship with a man to quench her thirst. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Everyone who tries to quench their thirst apart from God will thirst again. The longing will never be satisfied. In fact, the longing becomes larger and consuming. Not just one, but two, three, four, five husbands. It's consuming and ultimately dangerous. I heard a story about a woman who slept with her pet snake. You couldn't pay me a million dollars to sleep with any kind of snake. <laughs> but this woman slept with her pet snake and not a garden snake. It was a massive boa constrictor. And the woman gave half of her bed to the snake and she took the other half. She's quite obviously obsessed with her pet snake. After a while, she realizes that her, her snake has stopped eating. It's been over three weeks and the snake hasn't eaten anything. She thinks her snake is sick and she takes it to the veterinarian. She tells the doctor she's worried about her snake. It won't eat anything. The doctor took a few seconds and then asked a question. Does your snake sleep with you? 
And the woman replied, well, yes, it does. And the doctor asked the next question, well, has your snake started to stretch itself out and lay next to you? And the woman, quite surprised, said, well, yes, it has. And the doctor said, well, your snake has stopped eating and started stretching itself alongside of you to measure itself against you because it is planning to make room for you. Your snake has been preparing to eat you. This is what happens when we let our deep longings of success, comfort, pleasure, sex, power go unchecked. What start out as little obsessions become something that's planning on eating us. So Jesus comes to this woman who is in need, filled with toxic shame, yearning with deep longings. And he says to her, the water that I will offer you, that I am offering you, will become a well of eternal life. Jesus had to go meet this woman to tell her, I am what you need. He had to go meet this woman to tell her, even in your secret and in your hiding, I will come to you and I will not leave you and I will love you. And he had to go and meet her in her longing and tell her, I am enough for you. The reality is we will worship something. The gospel of Jesus is not just identifying what we falsely worship. That alone will not change us into people that are worship-driven. It's the, it's the beginning. But what we need is to have our worship replaced by Jesus. He needs to replace it, and he needs to become the object of our worship. The second way we become worship-driven is to realize that Jesus delocalizes worship. After she has this conversation with Jesus about her husband, she says in, in verse 9, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to our woman, Believe me, the hour is coming. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus here uses the Greek word for worship, which was the dominant Old Testament Hebrew word for worship. And it's the word that, that had the concept of outward worship, localized worship in a, in a particular place. You can, you can even see this, how this woman is thinking about worship when she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And Jesus is transforming the concept of worship from one that is mainly outward to one that is mainly inward. Place is not the issue. Now true worship has broken in because of Jesus, and it's a worship that is in spirit and truth. That's not wrong for worship to be in a place. That's what we do every Sunday morning here at the Haytow Center. But Jesus is making it clear that location is not what makes worship worship. What makes worship worship is when it's in spirit and truth. Spirit means by the Holy Spirit, a real inward spiritual act not just mere outward not a mere outward event and it's in truth a proper response to a true view of God the right location of worship is, is not just a physical space but it's in the place where God is present 
And it's in Him, Jesus, who was the incarnate Son of God. And by the Spirit is how we know Him, Jesus, who is truth. True worship is a matter of our hearts knowing and experiencing and worshiping Jesus. It's not a matter of place. And this woman gives us two things that I think can help us examine our own hearts of worship. One is negative and one is positive. Here's how we can examine our own hearts. The first is do we deflect through questioning? Do we deflect through questioning? Jesus has just engaged this woman in her needs, in her toxic shame and her deep longings. He's met her there and told her he is present and he's enough. And then verse 19, it kind of feels abrupt. She asks about worship on the mountain, which worship is the point of this passage, but reading it, you can almost feel like she's trying to shift away from her heart to her head, from this truth that's resonating deep in her soul to some intellectual knowledge about worship. We are very good at doing the same thing. We would rather talk at an intellectual knowledge level than heart level. Speaking at a heart level is vulnerable and real. Intellectual knowledge, which can be good. The- theological knowledge or questions that we might have, doubts that we might raise. These are, these are good things, but intellect is an arena in which we still feel like we can control. Let me give you an example. I remember meeting with a pastor seven years ago. We'd meet often. And one time he was asking me about my life, about pain, and regrets and longings that I had experienced. And then he looked at me and he asked me, Daniel, when was the last time you felt loved? And I was like, huh? And then he followed it up. He said, Daniel, when was the last time somebody just held you and told you that they loved you? (laughs) I wanted to curl up and and suck my thumb. I thought he was going to start holding me on the side of the road in in public so everybody could see. (laughs) I literally felt my heartbreak when he asked me that. And tears filled my eyes. And you know how I responded? I asked a question. What do you mean by love? (laughs) As if to say, give me the definition of love. Let's think about love. And I felt the tears go away. I suppressed and push down the emotion. I did a major juke move to get away from dealing with my heart. Do you deflect through questioning? Do you hide behind your intellect or your questions? If we're honest, we're pretty good at the smoke and mirror show. We've learned how to avoid our hearts. But Jesus says true worship is from the heart, in spirit and in truth. Here's a second way to examine our hearts. Positive. Do we express longing by asking? In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given living water. Verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. If you ask, if you ask, asking means we are in a position of receiving Asking for Jesus to fill our hearts with himself puts us in a position to receive the offer of himself. It's a free gift. 
But as a free gift, it's not a competitive prize. It's not something we earn. It's not something you apply the right technique to. But it is a free gift that we can receive if we ask. So we must ask. I know some of you and many in our city struggle with this question of, of do I really believe in Jesus? Kind of an assurance of belief. How do I know I believe? I've, I've met with many people throughout the years who've struggled with this assurance of belief. And maybe you're questioning, do, how do I know I believe? Do I really believe? It? And that's why I love this verb, ask. If you would ask, you may not be sure if you're always believing. And you may be like me, you're analytical, and you want to parse out what does belief really mean. But let me tell you one thing. You can be sure if you are asking. That is clear. And if you are asking, God is faithful to extend to you the free gift of himself, his presence and love and grace. God the Father is seeking such worshipers, hearts of worship, who worship in spirit and in truth. The last thing, if we want to be worship-driven, is that Jesus must compel us to call others into worship. When we encounter Jesus and he changes our hearts into hearts of worship, we'll become like this woman. I love how this passage ends. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. See, this woman has had what she worships replaced. She leaves her water jar because Jesus has quenched her thirst and her longings. This is what happens when Jesus quenches our thirst, we will no longer try and draw life from marriage or family or success or pleasure or impact. In fact, what Jesus does when, when our hearts are now worshiping Jesus, Jesus turns our idols, these things of marriage and family and success and pleasure and impact, he turns those into temples now where Jesus can be worshiped. Listen, success is not wrong. Marriage and family are obviously not wrong. Pleasure is not wrong. Making the impact is not wrong. But they, they are when we think life is found in them. When we think that they are necessary. But when we encounter Jesus and our hearts are worshiping Jesus, God puts all created things into their proper place. And success and marriage and family and impact, if they come into our lives and we're worshiping Jesus... They can be places where we give honor and worship to Jesus. Jesus compels us to leave our water jars. What are your water jars this morning? Would you leave them and find full life in Christ? And then verse 29, the woman says, Come and see a man. Who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Come and see a man. When we are driven by worship of Jesus. And we're encountering him in our hearts. We will be compelled to urge people. Come see a man. Come and see the God man. The one who would experience another sixth hour later in the gospel of John. And in that sixth hour he would give his life on a wooden cross. So that he could offer the free gift of love, grace, peace, rest, 
contentment, joy, satisfaction that is found in him. In that hour, Jesus was very thirsty. But he would not drink from the offer given by the Roman soldiers. His drink would be to worship his father, to drink from his father's love, the well that he knew would never run dry. Jesus knew it was a divine necessity to lay down his life and death so that we who ask, we who seek, can receive the gift of life that's found in him. This woman did not need to be forced into telling people about Jesus. She didn't need to be given a track and told to go knock on doors to tell people about Jesus. She didn't need to be guilted and shamed into doing it. She was overflowing with worship and cut to the heart with Jesus' love and grace extended to her in her sin, and she could not help but speak of Jesus. When you meet Jesus at your well, or when Jesus meets you at your well, you will shout it on the mountains. Come and see a man who knows all I've ever done and all I ever will do, and he loves me. Come and see the God-man. Come see Jesus. Would God make us a church that says, come and see. Come and see a man. Come on Sunday mornings and see this man. Come to our city group and see a man. Come to the social or to the service that we're doing and see a man, the God-man Jesus. M. Scott Peck was a psychiatrist and an author. He died in 2005. I began with David Foster Wallace quote. I'm going to end with M. Scott Peck quote. Listen to what M. Scott Peck wrote. Had you asked me a dozen years ago whether Jesus is real, I would have said, sure, obviously he was a pretty wise chap, executed, and then for some reason or another, people began to build a religion around him. That's how I would have replied. But when I did finally come to read the gospel for myself, I was thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found. I discovered a man so incredibly real, he could not have been made up. I began to suspect gospel writers went to great pains to record as accurately as possible the events and sayings in the life of a man that they themselves hardly began to understand, but in whom they knew heaven and earth had met. Heaven and earth meet in Jesus. In Christ we get heaven itself. And he comes to you knowing what you need, knowing your shame, your hiding, and your secrets, and he knows your longings, and he offers himself to you this morning. As a church, we hold tightly to the value of worship-driven. We will be intolerant to believe that Christ alone is the one who quenches our thirst and satisfies our hunger. May God make us a church known for joyful worship found in Jesus in a church that is driven to tell people, compelled to tell people, come and see, come and see a man. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do just that in our lives that you would work so deeply in our hearts that we would trade all that we look for life and meaning in for you, Jesus, 
the offer of yourself, that we would ask that you would even put that by your grace in our hearts, the desire to ask so that we could receive from you all that we need, all that we long for, that we would receive in you the identity that, that we know we don't have to be ashamed because we're loved by you, we're your daughters and your sons. And would you compel us as we worship in spirit and in truth to, to, go, and tell, to go and tell people, come and see a man, come and see Jesus, who is better and is more and is greater than our hearts could ever imagine. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.